Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This episode is featuring Laval St. Germain, who is a Canadian adventurer and explorer. He's the only Canadian to have climbed Mount Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen. Uh, the only person to have climbed and skied Iraq's highest peak. He's the holder of the fastest ever crossing of the North Atlantic Ocean by solo ocean rowboat from mainland North America to mainland Europe. He's also climbed all seven summits, which is the seven highest peak on each continent on the planet. That is just a very small uh, sample of some of the absolutely incredible things that Laval has done. Super inspirational. He's a great storyteller. So we really hope that you enjoy listening to some of the epic stuff that he's done. Um, we also hope that he will be a future guest of the podcast as well. Clearly not done exploring and adventuring, and we would love to hear more uh, a little bit down the road. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company. They have released their race-ready gravel machine at an accessible price. The 6061 All-Road has a durable aluminum frame, lightweight carbon fork, and numerous tire and wheel choices. It's an absolutely incredible bike and value for anything you want to do, whether it's road, gravel, a little bit of light mountain biking, anything in between uh, adventure touring or bike packing. It would be ideal for State also has a whole bunch of other cool bikes and apparel. You can check out statebicycle.com and use ed- code adventure audio as all one word and you will get free shipping. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by the Black Bibs, who are home to affordable and unbranded cycling apparel. They're where you can get the now legendary $40 bib shorts plus ultralight jerseys in solid colors. They won't make you feel like a rolling billboard. Check out theblackbibs.com if you want to be cool, comfortable, and most importantly, be yourself. Lastly, the podcast is brought to you by Richie Design. They make all kinds of very cool components as well as bike frames. You can check out Richie logic.com to find all of their accessories we have some really really nice handlebars and stems and seat posts to be putting on our state all road bikes uh, which we'll catch up on some reviews for but just really sweet gear awesome heritage check out richielogic.com on to laval saint germain laval thank you for joining us yeah How'd you guys, how on earth did you guys track me down? I just kind of, I try and stay below the radar. How'd you guys find me? You know what? I think I, I had heard about you and then, and then admittedly for, forgotten about your story. I, I think, I think I saw a feature about you in outside magazine, maybe, maybe four or five years ago or something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, that's incredible. And then just, I was out on a bike ride with a couple of buddies maybe three or four weeks ago. And uh, one yeah. of them said, you know, who, you know who you should reach out to and get, try and get on your podcast is Laval St. Germain. He's, he's in oh, Calgary. Yeah. And, and I was like, so, yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. And I thought, okay, let's, let's reach out. And, uh, and here you are. So there's, thank you for being gracious with your time and, yeah. and joining us. Like we're, we, you know, we like to, obviously we chat a lot of bikes, but, but anything related to adventure um, we're into and like, I think that we're both fascinated by people who are able to to do multiple disciplines at a really high level. Like there's something about the specificity that makes it less remarkable when somebody's really good at one thing that they spend all their time doing. But you've done things that are just like, you know, sort of worlds apart athletically. Um, mm. And it's it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, I've used a lot of... Uh, I've used the bike as one of my primary tools though for, for training. I think it's been a pretty key component. I use it to, that's how I get back and forth to work every day. I've been doing it for many, many years. So 
um, yeah, that's that sort of lays my base miles down and gives me my base level of fitness. So, yeah. uh, so where are you where are you riding to work? The airport? Yeah, to the airport. It's only fifteen k each way, okay. but um, okay. I do it. I do it the wintertime, summertime, and you know it adds up, right? So oh, yeah. and then you can always. I take longer routes home sometimes, and and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's 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 free training is what I call it, right? You don't have to get yeah. permission to sneak out of the house. You're not you're not in you're not dipping into the points bank with the wife or going on a long ride with your buddies. It's just going to work, right? Yeah, that's great. Um, hey, well, I'd love to hear kind of about you know your upbringing. Uh, sounds like your parents parents were very influential in you know where you are today, and yeah, I think it's a great story. And if you could share a little bit. Of, to us, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, so I'm from um, uh, a town in northern Alberta called Mournville. So it's a, a it's a French Canadian community. Mornville is the the way you say it in French. And uh, um, there are three areas in the province of Alberta that are francophone, and this is one of them. So just north of Edmonton, the capital of the province, small town. It was probably about when we moved away, probably had about two to three thousand people living in it. It was largely um, like I said, a French Canadian town surrounded by uh, largely German uh, farm communities or farmers. And my mom is uh, of German descent and my dad is French Canadian descent. And hence the name. I've got a very francophone name, yeah. but I speak with a plain old Canadian English accent. So, um, yeah, we grew up in this small town. My dad was big into the outdoors, uh, hunting, fishing, canoeing, that type of thing. So um, my introduction to the outdoors was, was simply that. Um, hunting with my dad, uh, canoeing with the family uh, in the rivers in uh, northern Alberta. And, uh, and then uh, my dad was a real uh, proponent of reading. So we always had a National Geographic uh, subscription and uh, lots of books laying around the house that uh, uh, I think were specifically uh, interesting to, uh, to a young boy. Uh, this is obviously uh, before the time of iPads and iPhones and that type of thing. So we read, right? So we had books um, from, um, like, you know, famous Canadian authors to authors that you guys are that uh, you, Tyler, would know, like um, uh, the books White Fang about the oh, yeah. dog sled team, Econ. And, and then I read um, um, Tarzan, uh, Hardy Boys, all that stuff. Hardy Boys, got oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And it just got me interested in uh, sort of, uh, it broadens your horizons, right? From that small town, it broadens your horizons to around the world. And, and one of the things my dad and I used to do as a big adventure is we'd walk from Mournville to my mom's uh, grandparents, or my mom's parents' farm, which was only about uh, eight kilometers outside of Mournville. And we'd walk along the railway tracks and we would fill up uh, a glass seven up bottle with water, put a little backpack on and we'd walk down the tracks and I would just ask my dad questions. And I would, we'd talk about things like Mount Everest. We'd talk about things like uh, the jungle and the Amazon and, and, you know, just little things that young boys would talk about with their dad. And, and I, I remember those walks thinking they were so incredibly difficult. And I remember sometimes we couldn't even make it. I'd be, I'd be too knackered and my mom would stop and pick us up after it was probably like five kilometers or something because I was so young. And uh, I don't know, somehow that just instilled this, uh, this love of um, the outdoors and, and sort of the physicality of the outdoors as well. And, um, you know, I, I remember one particular time we were canoeing down the Athabasca River, which uh, Pete will know, it's a big river here in northern Alberta. And um, 
I, I glanced off into the bush on the side of the river and I said, I said, how far back does that bush go, Dad, before you hit a road or a town? And he said, I don't know, like seven or eight hundred miles. And I remember thinking, holy, this is amazing to walk into that forest and just disappear. I mean, the, these numbers, uh, you know, these these distances and the size of the wilderness in the north was something that really enthralled me. So. Um, my dad uh, also, um, you know, saw that I wanted to travel and he said, if you want to travel, become a pilot, you can see the world. So that's what I did. Yeah. So there's a long that's answer great. to a short question. No, that's a great, that's great. I, lo I love that he encouraged you to be, become a pilot. And, um, I loved uh, reading about the, your, your initial years as a pilot, like to the North there. Can you share with yeah. us a little bit about that? That must've been incredible. I, I love that. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Was and it, and and today it's it's a pretty big day for us here at the house because um, our youngest boy Eric he's 19 he started his first job flying today he's actually oh, wow. over at a airport here and uh, it's called Springbank Airport he just started today so I was up with him at 4:45 this morning making him breakfast and um, and you know talking shop so to speak because he's following in my footsteps so. Um, yeah, it's the, the sort of the normal trajectory for a pilot in Canada is a little different than the U.S. You guys have a, uh, uh, a large percentage of your airline pilots that come out of the military. We have a tiny military here, like extremely small. I think a small military base in, uh, in uh, Montana could probably kick our entire country's uh, air force's butt because it's the, the size is just it's it's infinitesimally bigger in the U.S. But um, most pilots here, they get their licenses and then they go and they sort of pay their dues in what we call bush flying. You fly in the bush. So you're flying a float plane, you're flying a ski plane in the remote areas of uh, Canada where there are no roads. Yeah. So you're flying in supplies, you're flying people out for medical appointments. You're working with uh, various government agencies, either doing survey work or forest fire work or that type of thing. So I ended up in um, northern BC uh, doing forest fire patrols. And then I ended up in, uh, after that, flying a float plane the iconic Canadian float plane called the Beaver. It's got the round engine on it, the thing you'd see in posters, so to speak. And um, I flew uh, up on Hudson's Bay and James Bay in northern Quebec. And uh, it was amazing. It was um, sort of a baptism by fire. I, it wasn't like today where you do a couple of weeks of online training first and you get all these. It was like, there's your airplane. You got to go there. You're back here in six months. Have a nice summer type of thing. So right. it was amazing. It was, it was a steep learning curve. But um, I think it was uh, instrumental in um, sort of, uh, you know, giving me uh, a certain level of confidence and skill that that carried me through in a lot of different ways. So, yeah. And was there a point like when you started to take on bigger, bigger ventures where it became like, this isn't, this isn't weekend warrior stuff anymore. Now I'm going on like yeah. real expeditions. Like how did that sort of escalate to that point? It went fast. So I got on the airlines. I was very fortunate. I, I, I got on the airlines and I was only 21 and then instantly you have travel benefits. So we can travel uh, for next to nothing. I mean, um, you know, we've done, family trips to Africa where the entire trip cost us 400 Canadian dollars type of thing for the for the airfare. So I immediately went down uh, scuba diving in Honduras and in a very remote area of Honduras. It was pretty sketchy. I'm actually surprised I, I survived. 
And uh, then shortly after that, I, uh, a buddy and I flew down to Bolivia and we decided we wanted to climb this, uh, this beautiful volcano in Bolivia. It's the highest mountain in Bolivia. It's called Cerro Sahama. So we traveled to Bolivia and uh, got in the back of a farm truck. For 13 hours, we sat on uh, llama and alpaca skins on top of uh, uh, containers like uh, boxes full of uh, pop cans. And we ended up in this little remote uh, Quechua village in the Atacama Desert and uh, just about died. I got altitude sickness. I went snow blind. We were sick from the water and the food and, and um, made it to the top, uh, hitchhiked back to La Paz, Bolivia. And I was hooked, uh, absolutely hooked on that type of travel. Loved it. Um, you know, while, while you're in it, it's obviously type two fun sometimes when you're, uh, you know, you're, when you've got, uh, you know, when you're sick and you're snow blind and you've got altitude sickness and it's cold and my, my, you know, but you learn like my sleeping pad, I had a thermos that deflated on day one and I was sleeping on top of the climbing rope at night. And, um, but it just really, uh, sort of set the hook for me for, uh, for true adventure travel. And this was in the day, of course, when we had the uh, Lonely Planet guidebooks. Um, so these big yeah. fat books, and uh, there was there was no there was no uh, electronic guidance, so to speak. You just had to talk to people, learn the language, find out where to get fuel for your stove, and um, yeah. And then uh, after I got back from Bolivia, I uh, decided that well, you know, that was good. It was the uh, in in uh, um, Imperial units. It was twenty one thousand five hundred feet high. This peak. And then I just said, well, why don't I climb the highest mountain in South America down in Argentina? It's called Aconcagua. So I just flew down there solo. Didn't tell anybody where I was going. I told my parents I was going hiking in uh, South America. And uh, I did. <laughs> Which is sort of true. Yeah, it was kind of true. And then I did uh, sort of a, a, a non-standard route on that mountain called the, uh, the Glacier de los Polacos, the Polish glacier. But I did the direct. There's actually a direct and a super direct route. And I did that. Um, once again, you know, sticking my neck out way too far, making lots of mistakes, but learning from them and then, you know, surviving. And, uh, and then that just started to escalate things and started to progress. But all at the same time, we were starting a family, we had little kids, we were, I was starting my career, I was early in my career as an airline pilot, and we were moving around a bit. We ended up in, um, in the East Kootenays of Southern BC, not too far, far from the border, a place called Kimberley, BC. And right. um, so yeah. to, amongst the years, pick off some, you know, like Denali and Mount Logan and went to Russia and climbed. And yeah. And, and so initially it was just focused purely on um, mountaineering. I did a lot of trail racing, mountain bike racing, um, adventure racing. And uh, and then I, I don't know where Everest came from. I guess it was always in the back of my mind. So. The, the Everest story is really interesting, guys. Uh, you're, you're both married. I, uh, are, are you guys both married? Or you have a partner? Yeah. So you, you know how it is when you're going to go and do a big trip and how you, how you break it to your spouse or your partner. And I remember pouring Janet a, a glass of red wine, my wife, at the island one night. And it was December of uh, 2009. And I said... Uh, well, I didn't say anything. I poured her two glasses of wine because I was uh, trying to get some courage to break it to her. And I said, um, after two glasses of wine, she, she probably figured it had an ulterior motive, but it wasn't what she was thinking. And I, uh, I said, hey, babe, I'm going to go to uh, I'm Everest without oxygen. I'm going to leave in March. 
And she said, she took a sip of her wine. She kind of looked over the glass at me. She goes, it's about time you're not getting any younger. That's what she said. <laughs> so I knew, I, I knew that I had good support there. So it, it's, it's so important that you're with the right partner in a situation like this, right? That supports you and, uh, you know, understands what, uh, what it requires. So, yeah. And then uh, that sort of put me on the adventure map, I guess, in Canada, so to speak, is the, uh, is the Everslane. So was was the without oxygen was that like a real key piece to you? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't want to. Now, having said that, I don't want to diminish anybody climbing uh, sure. Everest with oxygen. Still, yeah. you know, I say it's like um, you know wearing all the clothes in your closet, climbing over a fence, breathing through a, a pop straw, like a, a soda can, like a soda straw. Like it's it's still difficult, even with um, oxygen on. Um, they say that it knocks about a thousand meters off the uh, physiological altitude of the airplane. So you're still talking about, you know, 26,000 feet above sea level, if, even if you knock a thousand meters off. So it's, um, it, it's still a, quite an accomplishment. Um, I read Reinhold Mesner's uh, books growing up. He's the, the first person to climb without oxygen. He did it um, with a partner and then he went back solo in 1980 and did it as, uh, from the Tibet side. And um, I just thought that sounded unbelievable, just to push your body to the limit and just be, just to have a true physiological test like nothing I've ever had. And uh, so I trained hard, even though you can't really train for those extreme altitudes because of the fact that a lot of it's just, just BS luck, whether you've got the genetics once you get up there, right? There's some speculation that climbers who are able to climb um, Everest oxygen have... Um, some uh, physical features in their brain that allows excess fluid that builds up the cerebral edema that can kill you on the mountain. This uh, excess fluid can build up and drain through a sort of a, an opening in the base of your skull into your spinal column. And the larger that opening is, the more the fluid can get out and relieve the pressure. And that's, that, that's one speculation of, how, uh, of what I mean by genetics, just luck. And you don't know until you're up there. So... Um, what I did is as we drove from Kathmandu up into the Tibetan plateau, as, as I just trained at every single stop we did, um, it takes about a week to get there because of the fact you can't just simply drive to base camp because you'll die from, from yeah. um, ascending too quickly. So I would just, we'd park the trucks and we'd unload our gear in some little village in Tibet. And then I would either try and run up a local peak or I'd hike to the top of a local peak and just force myself to, to, to rapidly acclimatize. So even when I got to uh, base camp, which is roughly about 18,000, 17,000 feet above sea level, I was uh, already sort of in a, in, a, in a phase that was a couple steps ahead of the people that I was, that I was with the expedition on because I'd been doing all that training. And uh, yeah, I just went out methodically. Things started to work out um, while I was going up and down. And I, I just wanted to do Everest in sort of a... a pure sense even though i mean having said that um everest on the two normal routes nepal and tibet is not a technical mountain at all it is just a very high altitude cold slog and um it's 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 a physical and a mental challenge but it's not a technical challenge at all so i was feeling really good i mean i remember being in high camp um uh, you know laying there getting ready to go for the summit and i didn't have a question in my mind that i was going to make it which was probably uh, misconceived because I, um, I just about didn't make it on the way down. Um, 
So it was, it was, it was physiologically unbelievably tough, but I think, um, as you guys know, and, um, because you're both endurance athletes, I mean, Tyler, you riding around with a busted shoulder or collarbone during the tour, you can, you can talk about it now, but you can't really describe the pain, right? Cause we are designed to forget pain. Yeah. And so I, I can sort of, I, I can try and uh, tell you how exhausted I was and how much it hurt, but it's kind of gone now. Right. And, yeah. um, but I, I came very close to dying on the descent. So. From so, because of the altitude. Yeah. So yeah, I made it to the top. I made it to, um, one of the guys I was on my expedition with, uh, Mark Del Sanche from the UK, he caught me, he was climbing the O2. We left the tent together and he caught me about an hour below the summit. So we walked to the summit together. We got there and I said, 20 minutes, mate, not a second longer. I'm dying. I got to get down. So exact, I looked at my watch and, uh, at exactly 20 minutes, we started the descent and that descent just turned into, uh, uh, just a death march. Um, I was sitting down probably every 10 meters in the snow. And I eventually decided that I was going to take a nap. And I had been told by an American climber that whatever you do, if you climb without O's, without oxygen, don't nap. Because if you nap, you're never going to wake up. And I knew that, that if I stopped and took a nap, um, I wasn't going to wake up. So I... Um, I had decided I was going to nap and I knew that if I napped, I would die. But I had built this narrative in my head that dying from napping up there would at least give me a good long nap. And it was comforting in a sense. And I thought about Jan and the kids. Like there was, I was just at that state. And I think it's probably like, um, you know, people who are terminal in the hospital in their final moments. Like, I, I don't think you have... You just don't have that concern anymore. You're you're just that knackered. And so I saw down this ridge in the snow, and I, I saw a um, it was fairly low visibility, but I saw a tent. Um, it looked like it was a destroyed tent, but uh, if I was thinking clearly, I would have known there's no tents that high on Everest. But I uh, I decided I was going to sort of crawl under the the torn bits of that tent and take a nap, and that would be it. And like there was no drama. It was just pure physical exhaustion. And uh, as I got to the tent, you know, through the snow, the tent actually wasn't a tent. It was a, another body, a uh, person up there. And it was a Canadian, uh, Frank um, Zebart, And uh, he was laying there dead, napping in the snow. And he'd been napping there since the previous season in 2009. I was up there in 2010. And he was just, he looked like he was napping. And he had a Canadian flag somewhere on his body that identified him as a, as a Canadian. And I, um, not that that mattered. But uh, seeing him lying there taking a nap kept me going. And I made it down to uh, the tent through just this, this haze of fatigue and just drunken stupor and hypoxia. And I somehow made it down. And um, it just shows you that I think what it taught me is that your mind can convince you to stop, that there's not a second uh, of of um, oxygen, endurance, hemoglobin, glycogen, whatever you want to keep you going. But there really, there really is. I mean, it's incredible what, uh, what you can do when you're at your, at your limit, right? And obviously, you know, up there, the, the consequence of, of pulling over is not like dropping out of a race or 
you know, stopping your run because you're breathing too hard. You got to keep moving. And, and yeah, I made it back. Um, I froze three fingers. I lost those, but other than that, it was, it was, um, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. Really cherished it. Wow. How, what was the recovery like from that? Like how long did it, and how long did it take you to get down the rest of the mountain? Yeah. So I got down to, um, what would be about, uh, so I got down to the high camp and our expedition leader was up there, if I remember right. And he said, whatever you do, don't get in that tent because you won't be able to get up again. You'll be too exhausted because you're in the death zone, right? Above 26,000 feet, about 8,000 meters. And your body's continuously dying. Like you have injuries from, you know, stove burns and knife cuts and that type of thing from, you know, from, from living in a tent for two months. And they're not healing at all. They're just, you have a big cut in your hand and it just kind of dries, but stays like an open, like a non-bleeding wound. Really strange. So your body's dying the entire time. So it's not like if you if 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 we were to do a ride here, a big grind, let's say a 300k ride, and then we go to bed that night, even if it's for three hours, you're gonna have some recovery. Um, your recovery up there is non-existent. You just keep on going downhill. So I laid down in the tent, just wearing my high altitude suit, didn't take anything off. One of the other climbers for expedition got in trouble. He was, you know, he he fell into our tent, big guy. And uh, he wasn't breathing right. So we were trying to make him tea. We got an oxygen mask on him because he was out of O2. And uh, we thought he was dying, but he ended up uh, pulling through, obviously. And uh, it was just a terrible several hours in the tent. But to get out of that tent in the morning, was one of, like, it was unbelievable. I, I, I finally got out of the tent. I just started this sort of, like I said, this continue this death march down, feeling as knackered as I was the day before. And then I got to uh, a tent at about uh, 25,000 feet above sea level. And I crawled in there. The sun was shining. It was warm in there. And I kind of laid in there for about, I don't know, half an hour, maybe an hour, just kind of resting. And then I was able to push down uh, to advanced base camp, which is the same altitude, uh, same elevation as the top of Denali at about 21,300 feet. And uh, there was an American expedition there with uh, an American doctor and she looked at my hand and just told me to thaw it out in some warm water and it was gonna hurt and um, so I, I crawled in a tent I had this pan of warm water and I started to thaw my right hand out which I I froze about uh, three hours outside of the tent on the climb to the summit and uh, I had a radio a walkie-talkie and a guy from my expedition that I camped beside me and left and I had to say goodbye to him and gave him a tea and he uh he was out there dying and they were looking for oxygen and they couldn't find any and i had talked to a kiwi expedition who said listen if your expedition gets in any trouble you need o2 there's a tent at this location this is the color of it you guys are free to use it so i got on the radio and i told them where the o2 was and uh they were able to get a sherpa to uh just unbelievable that he was able to sort of speed climb up to uh peter kinlock a scottish climber 26 years old who was up there dying and uh uh peter was sitting just below the summit he'd summited got blind uh had gone blind and um was uh doing sort of the typical high altitude death on everest right he was starting to take his mitts off took his toque off um unzipped his high altitude suit and um, it was obviously hypoxic and in the final stages of hypothermia as well. And then um, um, 
one of the guys I was climbing with him handed him this bottle that the Sherpa had run up there for him. And uh, they were sitting on the edge of a cliff, like a drop off behind him. And uh, he said, hang on to this for a second. I'm going to change the, the valve on it or change your bottle over from your from the setup you have right now. And, and Peter, because he wasn't obviously thinking straight, he threw it over his shoulder. And, and uh, yeah, Peter's uh, still up there. So um, I was listening to all of this on the radio. So I was listening to this sort of this fight for survival. Peter was such a nice guy. He was getting married when he came back from Everest. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was, it was just awful. And um, so, yeah, my, so my hand was just a, a minor, minor thing. When, when you think about the grand scheme of things, yeah, it hurts to thaw it out, but man, I was listening on that walkie talkie to the tragedy going on up there, which is all too common on Everest. And uh, it certainly uh, kept your mind off uh, three frozen fingers. That's for sure. Yeah. And then, and then after that guys, I still had to consider that I did it. I still didn't think I, I wasn't successful because it hadn't gone past the last objective hazard. And what I mean by that is I, Hadn't crossed all the crevasses yet. I hadn't been past all the avalanche areas yet. There's still a chance that I could still get chopped on the way down. And there was this one tower of ice called this, we call them Seracs, a tower of ice at the bottom of the glacier right near base camp. Like right now, I'm, you could have been in trail running shoes at this part. Like it was just benign downhill hike across glacial debris. And once I passed that last Serac, was maybe, I don't know, 10 meters high, so it could have fallen on me. I thought that's it. Objective hazards are done. I'm at. I'm approaching base camp. I've I've done it. But until that, I didn't feel anything at the summit other than a a requirement and a need to get down. So it wasn't like I was. There was no fist pumping. There was no. There was just let's get up and let's get the hell out of here because it's the descent that normally gets you on these big mountains. Good. Good on you. Good on you. Stay focused on your objective. That is incredible. Okay. Yeah. So how does how does how do you go from that to deciding to row across an ocean yeah. by yourself? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the hardest part of uh, before the ocean row was coming back to sort of real life after Everest, right? So one day, sure. the most important thing is that you've got your stove and you've got an algae full of water. And next thing you know, I was uh, in management at the airline at that time. I was the chief pilot, and I remember coming back. And very shortly after coming back to Calgary, I was in my office and my secretary came in and said, she wanted me to approve some overtime for one of her pilots. And I just remember thinking, this is insane. Like, who cares? Yeah, I'm going to sign it. I don't even want to know about it. I just, where's my analogy? Like, do I have fuel for my stove? Like, like you go from, from these uh, sort of living life uh, with, with, with such focus on just survival to now all of a sudden, you know, a day after getting home, Janet says, on your way home, can you pick up some bread and some milk type of thing? And everything just, it was, it took, it took a while to, it took a while to sort of uh, depressurize and get back yeah. to normal life for sure. And plus you're up there with, you know, people dying and stuff. So, yeah. so yeah, so I, I came back, I obviously, uh, I uh, re-emerged into society. Normally I shaved my beard off and then Mark, the guy that I'd summoned at Everest with, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, I'm an airline captain. He's a super yacht captain. So he he captains these super yachts in the Mediterranean for like Russian oligarchs and stuff. And he said, uh, about a year later, he said, do you want to row across the Atlantic? And I thought, oh, there's nothing I'd want to do less than row across the Atlantic. Like there's nothing on earth I'd want to do less than sit there in a little tiny boat with another dude 
and row across for you know, 40 days from the Canary Islands to Antigua, which is the normal crossing. So I, 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 I just said, you know, absolutely not. And, um, and then a few years later, probably took about four years, I just started thinking about it again. I thought, I want to go from... So the normal crossing of the, of the Atlantic is from the Canary Islands to Antigua. And that's what the trade winds routes. You've got a nice wind that blows you along from the coast of Africa all the way to Antigua. That's the way that Columbus came across, for example. So it's warm um, and you've got the prevailing wind is pushing you to, to the new world, to North America. And, you know, I think several hundred people have done that. There's even like there's races that go across yeah. with teams and solos. And I want to do something different. I wanted to go from mainland North America to mainland Europe versus island to island. So the guy right now who has claimed the record for crossing the North Atlantic did it from Newfoundland to some islands off the coast of, of uh, the UK, which is about 700 nautical miles shorter than the route that I did. I did it mainland to mainland, but, but uh, just the Ocean Rowing Society, the way they keep the records, it, he's got the record. Not that it matters. I, was, I wasn't out there for records. It was an accidental fastest crossing. So I, I decided I was going to do that. Now, that one, breaking that one to Janet, was, was, uh, she was more disturbed by that one than by Everest, for sure. Yeah, I mean, she what were your skills like? like yeah, well, sorry to interrupt. What were your skills like? Obviously, in the mountains, they were incredible. But what were your skills like? Zero. Zero. That's what I was thinking. That's what so I was that's thinking. why she's oh, skeptical, yeah. right? She's like, listen. Yeah, I <laughs> can understand. Yeah, I understand, Janet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was less than zero. I'd been on a ferry from um, <laughs> the coast of sea to the Queen Charlotte Islands. I'd never been on a ship before. Um, I'd done a little bit of sea kayaking, like amongst the islands in the Queen Charlotte Islands off the coast of uh, northern BC, but that's it. So I had to just literally page. I had to get my marine radio operator's license. I took my yacht master training. I read every book I could on on sea survival and dealing with storms at sea, which is probably not a good idea before you get in a 20-foot-long rowboat and row across the Atlantic to read about storms. And uh, I just, you know, I kept on training physically, which I do all the time anyways. Tons of research. I had a, a boat built by the best uh, ocean rowing boat company in the world, Rannick Adventure in, uh, in the UK. And then to to sort of uh, quell Janet's fears and the kids' fears, I, um, we flew there to the UK and brought her to where the boat was being made, brought them all there and showed them the boat and uh, to show them how rugged it was. How it's, it kind of reminded me of like an Apollo capsule. Is that tough? It's yeah. just like this little tiny thing that's made out of fiberglass and carbon fiber. And it's, you know, it's just like, it's, it's built like a brick shithouse, this thing. It's made for crossing the North Atlantic. And these guys know what they're doing. So even the hinge on the door is made for, made for my route because of the prevailing winds. So they put the hinge on the, on the door so that if I ever open it, the winds would prevail generally from the, the north, uh, Northwest on that crossing. So they put the hinges so that when I open the door, the wind would always blow it back shut, the cockpit door where I dive in there during storms. Versus the other way where the wind would catch it and bust it off its hinges. Like little things like that. Extra solar panels because of the fact I was in the North Atlantic and didn't get as much sun as I would if I was in the South. And it was an incredible little boat. And um, we, we christened it True Blue. Janet christened it there with a, with a bottle of champagne. And then Eric, my son, and I rode it around in the ocean there with the guy who built it. And and this is a, just a long-winded way of answering Tyler's question. While I was 
while we were rowing it on this this the Crouch River in the UK, the guy who built it said to Eric, who was uh, 14 or 15 at the time, he said, so uh, what did you think when your dad say he was, say, said he was going to roll across the Atlantic? And it's all tape. I've got this in, when I do my presentations, I, sh I play this video. And Eric's rowing a boat, and he goes, he kind of looks to the side and he goes, I don't know, it was kind of random because he doesn't actually row. He just came down <laughs> one day and said, I'm going to roll across the Atlantic. That's so, great. Uh, I think I think that from you know I think that testimony is what I knew about rowing. So, but there's a lot of stuff that, that piggybacks on the aviation thing, reading weather and yeah, and sort of the way you manage a machine and yeah. I mean, I treated it like a like I was like I built emergency checklists. I, like I was I was prepped like I was a like an airline pod rowing a boat. I thought about every eventuality. I had backups of everything. Um, you know, in, in the aviation business, it's redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. You've got extras of everything. So that's what I did. And um, off I went. And you did great. You said it was going to take, what, 90 to 100 days, and it took you 50 days, which is, I mean, that's a long uh, time to be rowing. But yeah, you did it really well, really well. Yeah, 53 days. I had lots of good storms that okay. um, pushed, in the right pushed me in the right direction. Yeah, there's a Norwegian rower who had left New York, um, and we were sort of neck and neck. We weren't racing, but neck and neck going across. And one big storm hit us both, and he decided to um, to deploy his uh, – it, it's a sea anchor. So what it is, it's a giant underwater parachute. You deploy it off the boat. It's on about 100 meters of rope, and that thing inflates underwater – and obviously, if the wind's blowing you, the airplane, the, the airplane, the boat's going to be moving in the wrong direction or uh, moving in the right direction, but moving so quickly that you'll stay with the storm. So by anchoring out there and slowing down your progress, the storm passed over him, would pass over him, and, and then he'd catch the back end of it and keep on going. So, so his idea was let the storm pass over him by going on the sea anchor. So he'd slow down to just a couple of knots moving across the sea, even though the wind was blowing towards Europe. I, being inexperienced and dumb, this guy had rode from Senegal to, uh, I think, Brazil once already. So he was an experienced ocean rower. I decided I was going to run with it. So I didn't deploy my sea anchor. I just, so when you deploy the sea anchor, it's off the front of the boat. So it keeps the bow into the waves, which is exactly what you want. So the big waves would come up and, and, the boat would ride perfectly through the waves. So I turned my boat around, which I was doing anyways, and I just decided I was going to let this storm sweep me towards Europe. And it was it was crazy. It was like being in a rodeo for three days. I was capsizing, giant waves, gale force winds, huge waves. And uh, but that that uh, decision to to uh, run with the storm versus to 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 anchor probably put me 260 nautical miles uh, further down than I would have if I would have stayed there. And that just made all the difference in the world because these storms kept coming. And because he was two to 300 nautical miles behind me, just the way the storms were tracking, they were hitting him and pushing him north. And uh, he and they were missing me. And eventually he got uh, caught in a massive storm in the North Atlantic and had to be rescued by a tanker. And it was wow. a tanker that's 70 feet high. And they had to deploy a ladder and he had to climb up the ladder. Super risky maneuver. But the guy oh, made yeah. it. Yeah. So just, wow. just luck, you know, sometimes it's just luck. And beginner's luck, I decided to run with it. 
and uh, and that just made me just catch the edge of all those major storms. But they kept sort of spitting me like a watermelon seed towards France, and it all worked out. Wow. But so, what's it like to capsize in that thing? It's made to do a complete 360. Uh, okay. It never went to 360. It went to like it never went completely inverted. It always went to about. Uh, 160 degrees so that 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 cockpit door I talked about would be underwater like and then would come back again you don't okay. do a complete 360 is is not good because you can damage stuff on the on the boat so things like the antenna array and that type of thing yeah but it's like it's like being in a car accident a couple of times um the worst tyler is at night coming down a wave at night you have to make sure you track down the wave straight or you're going to capsize at the bottom but at night you can't see anything so I would, uh, and you control the bow with two little um, uh, cords attached to the rudder, and I'd run them through the cockpit door. I could just eventually feel the way the boat was planing through the water after that much time at sea, and I knew when it was coming down the wave straight. So you could just feel the, the, way, the, the way the water was running off, because you're literally sitting in the bottom of the boat. I could just feel that it was right, even though it was pitch black. Was able to generally avoid catastrophe, but yeah, I, I quite often capsized. And, and the amazing thing is, even in these big, big storms, like I'm talking eight meter high waves and you know over 30 knot winds, um, I could hear dolphins in the water through the hull of the boat all the time. Dolphins wow. all the time around me the entire trip. They'd be with me during storms, with me on sunny days. They'd, they'd entertain me. They lay beside the boat and look at me and amazing stuff. Yeah. Wow. At one point, I was rowing off the coast of Newfoundland, 9 o'clock in the morning, kind of a gray, foggy day, probably about 12 or 13, maybe 14 degrees Celsius, just a nice temperature for for working on the water. And the water was fairly flat, and uh, I was rowing along, and all of a sudden, about uh, 50 centimeters off my right-hand side was a blowhole just blew out a bunch of air and whale snot and right there was a whale's eye looking at me like right beside the boat like I could have touched it and this thing took a look at me and I looked at it like these two mammals out at sea and then it just went under the water under the front of my boat and then it it came out again and then went down and hit the the front of my boat with its tail didn't do any damage it was just a, like a love tap but it's pretty incredible yeah wow the wildlife out there is unbelievable. Good for That's you. That's crazy. Good for you. Yeah. And you raised, uh, you raised a bunch of money on this uh, expedition. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. For, uh, for cancer in, uh, in, in our city here, the Alberta Cancer Foundation. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's ironic we're talking about it now because uh, one, of our, one of my colleagues at work, young guy, he's got it bad. And so, I, I know so many people. I don't know about you guys, but it just seems like there's um, – uh, way too many people yeah. dealing with it, and young people too. And, and, and the uh, inspiration for this uh, fundraiser was uh, my buddy Corey, one of our captains here at, at the airline we fly at. He um, had a persistent cough that wouldn't go away, um, sort of had a misdiagnosis, and uh, 13 months later he got the word that he had uh, lung cancer, spread to his liver, spread to his hip, um to make a long story short though he's still thriving like he's right. he's doing fine uh, he's got three little kids and uh he's a real inspiration so i just decided that 
you know, the notoriety of uh, getting in a boat, well, the way I always put it is that to get the cancer diagnosis in my uh, imagination would be like, you know, you walk in your doctor's office and he says, uh, okay, this is what you've got. Uh, you're going to go through uh, a couple of months of chemo, maybe radiation. Uh, you're going to get nausea from the chemo. And I equated that to that diagnosis of cancer being in, a, in some minor way, like walking down to that dock in Halifax, but with no preparation, no training, no reading the books and saying, that's your boat. You're rowing across the Atlantic. It's going to take a couple of months and it's, you're going to be sick. You're going to be cold. You're going to be alone. And uh, you don't know if you're going to make it to the other side. And I, and I imagine that the, that hearing those words from the doctor would be similar to that. So I, I kind of use that as the notoriety of the trip to get attention for the uh, Alberta Cancer Foundation. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, that's great. So it's clear that your personality is such that something must be brewing right now. So what's, oh, what's yeah. next? You must be working on something. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, Can you talk about I it? I only, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let okay. it out of the bag once it's in, it's, it's yeah. in a politically sensitive area of the world where you can't travel, but I think we should be able to do it. And I've done some politically sensitive trips, right? I mean, I was just in Somalia just before the pandemic hit. I got captured by the Somali military there. Um, I've been captured by the Iraqi security forces. Um, I've climbed the highest mountain in Iran. So I've done some uh, some non-touristy travel. And, I, and I'll, I'll let it out, but it involves a bicycle and it's got fat tires on it. So Great. This great. sounds like a part two. Yeah, <laughs> this, this will be a good yeah. one. This will be good, and I won't freeze. And I won't freeze anything on this one. So there's another hint. Okay, okay. Well, fat bikes are only good, <laughs> fat bikes are only good for snow and sand. So I think I think you've laid some clues. Close. <laughs> yeah, man, Janet's pretty cool. She lets you go on all these cool to all these cool places. Dude. So yeah, hats off well, to Janet. Well, yeah, and your kids. Lottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, you got to have that support network if you want to do this, right? And, um, you know, we're probably the same for you guys because of, of your backgrounds, but our partners, our wives, probably the same with you guys is that, okay, get out and do a ride, get out and do a run, go to the gym, whatever, get out of my hair, you, you know, because we need that every day. And uh, she knows that. And uh, it's just, I'm just, I won the lottery. I'm really, really fortunate. That's great to hear. Um, can you t quick tell us about your, uh, so you do some public speaking as well, right? Yeah. That's yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, do you do some of that, Tyler, with your? Uh... I've done a little bit. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, you know, you come back from these things or you come back from a, from the world tour and people want to hear about it. Next thing you know, you're, you know, somebody gets you to stand up and talk about it. And then pretty soon you're, you're standing in front of the room talking about it. And then you've got a microphone and then you're at a podium and then you've got a classroom of kids and then a corporation hires. And it just sort of evolved. And, um, uh, you know, I take, a, I take a lot of video and I take a lot of photos when I do these trips. And then I share the stories, but I don't consider it motivational speaking at all. I just share the stories of what I've done. I'm a regular guy, regular job with a family and um and just trying to maybe um you know expose or let people know that that anybody can do this stuff yeah um and uh it, it's it's really rewarding I, I really enjoy doing it especially talking to youth i really like talking to um 
to teenagers. And, but, you know, I've done corporate gigs as well. I was flown into a diamond mine in the Canadian Arctic and did a talk for the miners in the Arctic. So I've done some cool talks. I've done, uh, I've done a talk in Massachusetts. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. I'm very that's fortunate. Where, you know, that's where I'm from. And I, so I'm a Bruins fan. And I think I saw, are you a Canadians fan? Oh, dude, of course. Oh, man. Of course. So we're, 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 we're like, jersey's right there. I thought I saw a picture of you with a Canadian's jersey. So, um, yeah, we're arch rivals. So, yeah. I know. And it's that's too good. bad that's you guys good. didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. I know, they're out. Uh, that was a tough one to swallow. But, yeah. <laughs> they're so good, too. Brad Marchand? Oh, my God, that guy's incredible. I actually, it's funny story about Brad Marchand is that he's from uh, Nova Scotia. And when oh, that's right. Janet flew out to Halifax before I rode across the ocean, I spent a week there as we prepped the boat and bought the food and all that stuff. And then she had to leave before I left. So I had left on my own. But um, we went to a, a restaurant in Halifax called The Bicycle Thief. And we got a table. And then a uh, couple minutes later, Brad Marchand walked in and uh, he had to wait for a table. He had to line up. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. that big. I was shocked at how small he is. He's a pretty short guy. He's amazing, scrappy. Yep. Oh, so so talented. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we always like to, you know, ask if you have any, like, uh, you know, sponsors that you'd like to talk about, or you know, obviously Janet and your kids. You know, hats off to them. For, yeah. You know, let you do all these things. Yeah. But, so um, um, I've got uh, I've got deals with like Helly Hansen. Um, Fisher skis. I don't have a bike sponsor, but I will be looking for one for this next uh, trip. Um, I'm sponsored by MasterCard, but like I've said many times, it's my own MasterCard I'm sponsored by. <laughs> I've got a, a pretty sweet deal with Bow Cycle here. It's a big bike shop in Calgary, oh, yeah. and they gave yeah, me yeah. ridiculous prices. Uh, I know the owners there are great guys, Fransky and yeah. Kurt and Larry yeah. and the rest. Shout out to Bo. It's good so, people. Yeah, awesome, awesome. I'm going there right after this because I'm building a road bike. But um, nice. yeah, nice. I, I don't, I don't. I'm like, I'm not a pro athlete. That's the thing. And and I'm, I'm actually, uh, I think I'm pretty uh, notoriously bad at um, at uh, marketing myself. I don't spend any time on it. I mean, I've I've got a Twitter feed and an Instagram account, but I don't get too crazy about it. You know, I've, you know, there's no excuse. I've got a full time career, but that's not really. Uh, an excuse obviously it would be nice to have uh you know full sponsorship for everything but i'm just sort of your regular uh you know adventure athlete who kind of does it on a shoestring it's great i like it that way yeah yeah it's absolutely awesome Laval, thank you for doing this we really appreciate it and for real like we'd love to have you back because i know there's more to tell and there's more stories to get into and we'd love to hear more of them and uh and hit me up too we should get out for a bike ride Let's do a ride, man. Yeah, I think we're going to do the 1A tomorrow, my daughter and I. So she's going to be doing uh, that next Sunday. Awesome. Oh, are you? Awesome. Uh, yeah, I hope they do I do. that. I just, I hope they keep that that way. Like, oh, just forever. Tyler, you got to come up here to God's country, do some riding. It's beautiful. Tyler has there. done I, that exact ride with, I have? with us. Yep, yep. So we've gone from between Canmore Banff, obviously, to the Legacy Trail, but the 1A, and then we've gone all the way up to Moraine Lake. I guess two years ago we did oh, that. Yeah. No good yeah. ride, guys. That was 
perfect if we could get Tyler north of the border is the uh, Highwood Pass, but the full ones. You leave Calgary, go through Longview, go over the Highwood, through K Country and back to Calgary. It's 300K. It's the highest paved road in Canada, and it's incredible. I did that last summer. It's a good hard day with lots of vertical. So you did the whole loop. The only point, point part I don't like is coming back on the one. Yeah. But if you're in a group, lots of lights. And a serious tailwind normally. Yeah. When we yeah. did it that day, we we had a pr probably about a 40 kilometer hour tailwind. And we were in Calgary in uh, uh, less than two hours from the casino on the highway there. It was not from, so fast. To from the 40 to 1 junction. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, let's do it. I like. I love. I love going up there. You know, it's just up the road. As a, as a. I know it's close. You know, it's not far. Yeah, yeah we're so, and then, so, so we're so nearby. We've and we were trying to put together a, a little bike camp in Kelowna for August, but we've pushed that off to May of 2022 because it's the border now. Like, I think we can put a little event together safely. But yeah, if one of our co if one of the co-hosts isn't allowed to, to cross the border, we're kind of stuck. Yeah, well, let me know if you need any help, guys, or if you want to do a ride. I'm always up for a gravel grind or a road ride or whatever. There's some incredible riding up here, so. We'll be in touch, yeah. for sure. Yeah, let's do it, yeah. Hey, thanks for taking the time, Laval. Really nice to meet you. Thanks for taking your time, guys. I'm uh, flattered to be on here. Enjoyed oh, it. Oh, we're honored to have you. Yeah, and we'll have you back for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, yeah. Laval. Hey, yeah, good luck to thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Have, a good, have a good weekend. Yeah, see you. too. Another big thank you to Laval for spending some time with us. Thank you, most importantly, to everybody for listening, subscribing, uh, liking, sharing, commenting, leaving positive reviews on the podcast. We see you doing so. We appreciate it. Uh, we see the listenership growing um, slowly but steadily all of the time. So thank you for uh, spreading the word about the podcast, letting people know about it. Word of mouth is a super effective way for podcasts to grow and gain new listeners. Um, and we appreciate you. So thanks for tuning in, spending your valuable time with us. We will be back really soon.